Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey everyone, this is episode 27. Um, I'm going to keep this um, introduction brief. Um, I just had my laparoscopy a couple days ago, so my energy is still a little bit low. (laughs) And I'm a little sore, I'm a little puffy. You might even hear my tummy grumbling because of the leftover gas that's in there. So everything is fine. And um, I want to thank everyone um, for reaching out and checking in on me. Um, I'm so, so grateful for that. Um, they did confirm that I do have endometriosis, but the severity of the endometriosis would be determined, um, after the biopsies come back, just to confirm that there's endometrial tissue, um, that they're looking at. Um, but yes, I'm so grateful for this really awesome community of people. Um, when I got home late that night, Jen, aka Cute for Fertility, um, surprised me with flowers on my porch. So nice. And um, Dr. Annie Co gave me, um, sent me a DoorDash gift card for dinner that night. Like how sweet are these people? And um, my coworkers had also sent me a gift card um, for the evening. So I'm just like so overwhelmed by the kindness and support um, from everyone. And I just thank you all for being here. And I'm so grateful for all the support. And you guys are amazing. I don't know what I would do without you guys. So thank you so much to everyone. I'm just, I I don't even know what to say. (laughs) Like, just so, so glad. So um, on my Instagram, I have my recovery and kind of what I'm experiencing day to day. And I just put that up there in case anyone else is going to have, you know, laparoscopic surgery and um, wanting to know what the recovery is like. And of course, it's my own experience. Everyone will have a slightly different experience. I know there are some others out there with their um, experience. I will um, put that in the show notes as well in case you want to read their experience. Today, we're going to be joined by Rijan Sharni, and um, she's an attorney specializing in the fertility space. And she deals with all things fertility. Um, so today she shares with us when we might need to seek counsel um, while we're getting our treatments. So this can come up if you're using donor gametes or if you plan on doing surrogacy um, or even if you're in a relationship and um, you know something happens and your relationship is no longer a relationship and you, know, you separate. Um, she kind of talks about that too. And um, when you're going through Um, fertility treatments, um, you know, if you need additional documentation to protect yourself. um, So you guys know what will happen to your embryos if you make them. Um, So that's just some stuff that we're going to be talking about. Um, We haven't, we didn't talk about um, adoption. Um, I'm going to try and have a different attorney come on, talk about who specializes in adoption. Um, So we will cover that. Um, we also spent a little time today talking about her views and opinions about going abroad. She does have some strong opinions about um, doing some treatments abroad, um, you know, because of the cost that it can be for some people. Um, and, you know, the reality is we don't all have uh, health plan coverage for all of this. A lot of us don't, depending on the state that you live in, at least in the U.S. I know it's a little bit different over in the U.K. Um, some people have it. Some people don't as well. So um, just something to think about. 
Um, And as always, if you are getting value from these episodes, please, please, please leave me a five-star review on whichever platform you're listening on. I'd be so grateful and it really helps spread this podcast and gets it into more ears. So if you could do that, that'd be great. I'm always open to suggestions. I'm always open um, to finding new topics and guests for the show. So, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I'd love to, you know, get as much information to you and help you all as much as I can. Um, all right, here we go. Hey everyone, we're back with another episode. Today we have Rijan Charney, who is a fertility attorney and specializes in fertility, all things fertility. So I'm so excited to have her here on the show today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with us, Rijan. Thank you. I am very, very happy to be here with you, Victoria. (laughs) Well, I think... Yes, thank you so much. I mean, I think there's a lot of important things to talk about and things that we don't consider when we're on this fertility journey. And some of us are on slightly different paths where uh, we may need to seek counsel um, as far as what we need to think about um, legally. Um, So there's a few things I want to go over today, and I definitely want to use your expertise, but I kind of wanted to start with how you got into the fertility space uh, with law. So could you kind of tell us how you... Uh, started practicing law with fertility? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I was a happy-go-lucky attorney or law student, very excited to graduate from law school. Um, And two days after graduating, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, which is a cancer of the lymph node. Um, So that was my graduation gift from law school. Mm. And this sent me down a journey uh, into fertility law. I did not know that fertility law existed. And like most people who I come across ask me, you know, or tell me that they had no idea that they needed a fertility lawyer. And I let them know I didn't even know that this was a, a field of law that exists. Um, but, you know, I got into it because when I froze my eggs before undergoing chemotherapy, um, yeah, I was told that it was going to be $15,000 at the time. I was a brand new law student. I knew the medical bills were about to skyrocket. And I was like, I don't understand. This is a similar side effect to losing your hair or nausea. Not everybody loses their hair. Not everybody has nausea. Not everybody's going to be infertile, right, from mm-hmm. chemotherapy, but it's a potential side effect. And why should insurance not cover it? Mm-hmm. Um, and that took me on a journey down figuring out how I could fight insurance companies and change legislation in order to get fertility preservation covered. And in that process of trying to figure out how that happened, I landed up working at a fertility law firm um, specializing in everything to do with assisted reproduction. Uh, And then I broke off and started my own firm uh, because I really wanted to be able to focus on not only the drafting of the contracts, which I know we're going to get into, but also how can we change the space and how can we Mm -hmm. make it more attainable and more affordable um, for people who otherwise simply just don't have the opportunity to have a family of their own. Mm -hmm. No, that's so important. I mean, on behalf of all of us struggling and who have to pay out of pocket, thank you for being our advocate and fighting for coverage for us. It's just, I mean, I think worldwide people struggle who do need assistive reproductive um, technology um, or therapy find that 
cost is a huge barrier to so many people. And I think that's why people try and get creative with so many different avenues of access at this point. I mean, you know, in the U.S., I I know we talked about this when we talked last time, but in the U.S., it's really expensive and there are options to go abroad. But I think there are some considerations when we're thinking about going abroad. Um, But so for you, you started with egg freezing. Uh, Did you do egg freezing here in the U.S. or did you go abroad? (laughs) I did. So I landed up for egg freezing here in the U.S. You know, I was diagnosed with cancer six years ago. So Mm -hmm. the concept and or the understanding of doing any sort of fertility abroad was so foreign and so scary at that point. It just it wasn't even a consideration. I mean, you take away the abroad aspect, freezing your eggs six years ago. I mean, the FDA made egg freezing non-experimental right around that time. Right. And so if you really think about, whoa, that was only six years ago. And now we're at the point of like you know, a kind body, for example, or people are starting to talk about freezing their eggs and it's being brought to attention and companies are adding in fertility benefits now to cover that, right? It is such a huge jump from what it was to what it is. And I was so embarrassed at the time to even tell people that I had frozen oh my, my eggs and I had a medical necessity for it. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I did not. Um, if I had the opportunity like if I was diagnosed again today um, mm-hmm. honestly I probably would mm-hmm. uh, you know the the clinics in Mexico um, which is where I would go because it's closest to here are mm-hmm. phenomenal don't get me wrong right there are some bad clinics in, in Mexico just like there are some bad clinics here in the United States right, right. and I think that's what people forget um, you know people think a United States best medical best everything that is true, but at the same time, there are very shady doctors. There are very bad clinics, um, and you know, unfortunately, when we see people who are in the space of trying to start a family, right? People know that they're at a really, really big disadvantage, and that people will do anything to have a family of their own, right? Double mortgaging their homes, taking out mon- monster amounts of debt on credit cards, whatever it may be. And unfortunately, there are people who try and take advantage of that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so in America, that happens. In Mexico, you know, that's not the case. But not all clinics are, you know, incredible in Mexico, just like, yeah. So Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely understanding and where to go, what's good, what's safe, um, what's not. Um, You know, and I've been in the space now for so long and especially in the international space that um, I've created an amazing network of clinics where I would go myself um, Mm -hmm. and I would say if I'd go myself then I'd be happy to send my clients there. Yeah well and I kind of for the people who maybe so not all my listeners are you know over 40 some of them are a little bit younger and so if they are faced with a diagnosis like yours where maybe it um, is uh, not fertility sparing, so maybe it if it it could potentially um, risk their fertility. How did you come to the conclusion of egg freezing? Because especially that long ago, like, did someone have that conversation with you? Especially being so young and everything, you know, did you think to yourself, "Oh my gosh, I should really probably consider like fertility preservation"? Or did you have someone say, "You know what? Given your age, this is something we should really consider before undergoing any therapy for your uh, lymphoma"? 
So, you know, that's a great question and something that really sticks with me. Um, I went to three oncologists. The first mm-hmm. oncologist I went to um, was so unbelievably rude, um, but I was so shocked with my di- with my cancer diagnosis that at the time I didn't process it. And he didn't even speak to me about fertility. I had to ask him, well, how does this affect my fertility? I was 27 at the time. And it's like, well, and, you know, w- now what? And I remember him turning to me and he's like, oh, you know, you have like a one in five chance of um, becoming infertile from your specific chemo. So I don't think it's worth the time or the costs. And like, you know, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And at that point, I remember being like, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. And then I was like, it took a few days and it sank in and I was thinking about it. And I was like, wait, that's like 20%. That's mm-hmm. like not a statistic I'm willing to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know anything more than that. He didn't talk to me about it. He didn't give me resources. I went to a second oncologist. He didn't really talk to me about it. And then I landed up going to MD Anderson, which is one of the top cancer hospitals in the world. And the amazing thing is that they do is they actually require you to meet with a reproductive endocrinologist as part of your treatment plan. So just like meeting with an oncologist or a radiation specialist, you actually meet with a fertility specialist. Mm-hmm. Um, and my doctor, her name is Dr. Terry Wooded. She is out of this world and changed my life. Um, mm-hmm. She's my mentor now. Um, and she gave me a piece of advice that nobody had given me. Um, I wasn't going to do it because I couldn't face those costs. Uh, mm-hmm. And she said to me, look, even if your chemo doesn't necessarily affect it that high, right? There are some chemos that make you completely infertile. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, if heaven forbid, you relapse. At that point, your eggs will have had the chemo in them and we won't have enough time to clean up the eggs from the chemo in order to freeze clean eggs. And Mm. as a result of that, you could, the next, you know, uh, if I had to relapse, then there's very significant fertility consequences that can occur. And I remember thinking about that. I was like, if anybody just explained that to me in the beginning, that really makes the world of a difference. And I think... You know, now understanding the the world so much better from a fertility perspective, uh, you know, I wish everybody understands that and, I, mm-hmm. you know, who are going through cancer. But for people who are not going through cancer, you know, I have so many of my girlfriends who are in their 30s now and they just will not freeze their eggs. And I mm-hmm. ask them, but why? Just mm-hmm. take a fertility test. Just start there. Like, yeah. you don't have to freeze. Just take a fertility test. Just understand your fertility. And mm-hmm. they all look at me like I'm asking them to run marathon and when I try and understand why right their aspect or their thought process is well I failed I have failed because I haven't found a partner I have failed Mm. because I focused too much on my career and I look at them and I'm like that is the worst mindset that you can have. You didn't fail. If anything, you decided not to settle with somebody right. to have children and yes. then get divorced in your 30s, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or you decided to focus on a career and be independent and live a world that you are happy in. And unfortunately, biologically, we haven't caught up to that. Yeah. But there is technology to allow your body to catch up to that, right? Like yeah. you can freeze your eggs at 25, 27, 30, whatever age you deem comfortable, you mm-hmm. never have to use them. But it's an insurance policy, yeah. right? Why do you take out car insurance? No guarantee you're getting into a car accident. Yeah. But in the case that you do, right, don't you want to be protected? It's yeah. kind of that same mindset. And that's really what I try and get you know through to them. And it's like, Today, when you undergo an operation, you would never undergo surgery without anesthesia. 
Why? Mm -hmm. Because we have the technology today for anesthesia to keep people out of their misery when they're undergoing surgery. Today, we've got this technology, whether it's IVF, whether it's assisted reproduction in all aspects of it, whether that's IUI, um, you know, egg freezing, sperm freezing, Mm -hmm. egg egg donation, embryo donation, whatever it may be. um, Why would you not use that? We have the Mm -hmm. technology to do that. Why would you not? Mm -hmm. Um, And once you explain it to them like that, I've had multiple friends now freeze their eggs and they are so happy because they froze them at 31. They uh-huh. met their husband at 38. Uh-huh. They weren't able to fall pregnant naturally, but they had an insurance policy of egg quality of when they were 30 and not mm-hmm. 38 or, you know, not having the opportunity to do it on their own at that yeah. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think all of us who've gone through similar kind of situations, we scream from the rooftops, freeze your eggs, everybody freeze your eggs, because we just are, you know, yep. if I had, you know, 31 year old eggs to work with right now, oh my gosh, like, you know, it's not a guarantee. It doesn't mean I'll, you know, 100% become pregnant, but at least I have 31 year old eggs and not 41 year old eggs. You know what I mean? Like, that's a big difference Absolutely. in quality um, and mm-hmm. definitely quantity too, although. Who knows with what I'm dealing with now? Maybe the quality or quantity wouldn't have been as good, but it's still quality would have been better. And that's definitely super important. But um, so absolutely. Yeah. So for uh, let's start with egg freezing. Are there considerations we need to think about legally when we're freezing our eggs? I mean, I think one thing I can think of is freezing in the U.S. versus freezing abroad, you know. So are there things that we should think about? Let's start in the U.S. when we're freezing our eggs in the U.S.? Yeah. So, you know, I think that um, freezing eggs in general, right, there is something Mm -hmm. that I think every woman should consider. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's really spoken about enough. And I don't know if you watch Selling Sunset, okay? Um, I'm a new addition to (laughs) reality show. But um, uh, one of the things I, you know, was so, not shocking to me, but kind of from being a fertility expert, looking at this from a legal perspective and being like, oh no, why did you do this? You know, Chriselle, for example, um, and this is common, she was dating Jason, right? They were in a very serious relationship. She wanted Mm -hmm. children. She's just turned 40. And, you know, she decided to freeze her eggs and they decided to create embryos together. Mm -hmm. Well, why do they do that, right? Why do you hear that? And in the old days, this stood more true than today. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the times doctors try and tell people, freeze embryos if you can, because they have a higher success rate, they're freezing eggs. To a degree, yes, but it's not to the point that it was back when, right? Back when, Mm -hmm. if you froze eggs before this, um, you know, the way we freeze now, wasn't such a high success rate. But today with this new cryopreservation technique, right, embryos and um, eggs, the difference is quite minimal from that perspective. And so what's happening is now she has, she's 40 years old, she's got embryos frozen, but they have Jason's sperm with them, mm-hmm. right? So now mm-hmm. the big implications come into, well, what are you going to do? Because now are you going to use those embryos? Is Jason going to allow you to use those embryos? And mm-hmm. are you going to have a child with Jason, right? Or your significant other that isn't a part of your life anymore. And that mm-hmm. really puts women in an awkward predicament. So I always try and tell women, you know, if you want, freeze your eggs. And if you have a significant other who you think is going to be your husband or whatever it may be, that's great. 
freeze half of those eggs and make embryos out of them. But Mm. keep a portion of those eggs for yourself because in the case that you get divorced, right, which we know is a 64% and counting divorce rate at this point, Mm -hmm. and you meet another person and that person wants to have kids, but you're in your 40s now or you're in your late 30s and you're not able to, um, at least you have your eggs frozen so that you can actually turn to that person and say, I can still have children. I have eggs frozen from when I was 30 and, you know, I, I have embryos, which I just am not going to, you know, use Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always try and tell girls who are, you know, in the concept of do we, what do I do? I have a significant other, you know, from a legal perspective, you just want to make sure that you always have some sort of independence in your eggs. Um, or if you do freeze the embryos, you know, you're going to have to sign a dispositional form, like what happens in the case you die, you get divorced, you know, you break up, um, Mm -hmm. you're in a coma, sort of stuff like that. Try and see if you as a woman can gain full rights and access to those embryos Mm -hmm. so that you don't have to get that man's permission or that partner's permission, right, um, to allow you to use those embryos. Mm -hmm. Um, Would that, how, I guess, that wouldn't matter if you're using a sperm donor, if you were being, if you were independent, right? right. And you were thinking like, right. well, who knows? And if I really want, you know, that slight increase in um, improvement in chances of creating life, then I want to make an embryo and I use a donor, then that is okay. But if you wanted to say, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here. Like if you're like, well, in case someone comes along, you can do a batch with donor and then a batch with your own or like a subset of just your own eggs. And you could do a a subset with a donor or something. If you're like backup plan, if, you know, if, if I never find a partner and I wanted to preserve my fertility right now, I could use a, Mm -hmm. a donor sperm and then I could do another batch with just my own or something like that. Right. Cause then you wouldn't have, yeah, if you are not partnered. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're not partnered and you've decided I'm going to be a single mom, like I I'm done waiting. I, I'm really want to start my, you know, my mother journey and I want to, um, use donor sperm, right? At that point, if you want to create all those, embry- all those eggs with, you know, donor sperm, you can, that's not an issue. But what happens if you do land up finding somebody later down the road and you want to have kids with them, keeping a few eggs, you know, for yourself, um, is not a, is not a bad thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'll have that donor sperm forever. You know, you buy a certain amount of vials, right, of it. So you don't have to use all that donor sperm either to create the embryos. So Mm. I think that no matter which route you go, it's, you know, you you kind of always want to have that separate property if you want to look at it that way, like Uh eggs are your property and they should belong to you 100% and nobody should be able to take those eggs from you um, Uh and or prevent you from using them, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. There's been multiple cases where, um, you know, and this falls into IVF, um, where we've seen, unfortunately, um, you know, couples were married, they went through IVF, they created embryos together. And then, um, you know, for example, there's a famous case, um, and she was diagnosed with cancer. She became completely infertile. He cheated on her and he left and they got divorced and mm-hmm. she really wanted to start her family. You know, she was 46 by that point mm-hmm. and she really wanted to use those embryos and mm-hmm. it required getting his consent and the mm-hmm. court outright in California said, absolutely mm-hmm. not. Um, mm-hmm. We will not allow you to force having a child on somebody else without them giving you consent, even if you're infertile from your cancer treatment. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see these cases and we see more and more of these happening. And unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, mm-hmm. you know, courts are much more in favor of preventing people from having children that are forced upon them, right? Mm-hmm. In a sense, like you're forcing me to have a kid, but I don't want to have a kid with you, even though this is going to be your kid wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Um um, versus like, oh, we understand that she's never going to be able to have on her own. It was under the mindset that, you know, she was going to have children with you, but mm-hmm. then she got cancer and the court is like, sorry, you guys signed an agreement, mm-hmm. which is why when you sign these, you know, embryo disposition forms at clinics, it's really important to consult an attorney to understand what that means mm-hmm. and what that form actually requires. Because if you ever go through a divorce proceeding, that mm-hmm. form is going to be included in your divorce proceeding. And that is going to be fought about probably more than the estate, unless oh. both parties agree. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, as far as egg freezing goes, so I... Yes. I'm, I don't know if this happens. Like if you freeze sure. your eggs and let's say you move or the clinic uh, shuts down or whatever, what ha- like what happens to those eggs? Do they do you know if they reach out to you or something? Do you know if something like that would happen? Yeah, like I let's mean, say a clinic closes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, technically they're supposed to, right? Because they they should never be allowed to just destroy the eggs or the Mm -hmm. embryos. Like, we haven't seen a case like that um, yet, Um, which is why, again, it's so important to go to a good clinic because if a good clinic gets bored or does, you know, land up shutting down or whatever it may be, right, they should be contacting everybody um, to let you know, hey, this is what we need to do. But there, you know, like when you sign up with a clinic and you store your embryos at a clinic, right, Remember, you're storing it with a clinic. You're not storing it with like a company like Reprotec, which is specifically designed to store and hold frozen gametes, right? Whether that's sperm, eggs, embryos, whatever it may be. A clinic only has a certain amount of space, right? In their back back office where they store their embryos or, you know, any sort of eggs or uh, gametes. And so if you don't pay, right, you sign an agreement with the clinic to say that if after a year you do not pay, the clinic will reach out to you. And if you don't respond back, right, then they have the right to discard them, donate Mm -hmm. them, do whatever it is that you've agreed to with them um, because they can't keep storing it for free forever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, again, that's something really important to make sure your contact information is always up to date with the clinic um, and that they're always able to contact you in some way, shape or form um, or make sure you put on automatic payments through a PayPal so it's not a credit card that you've stopped or something like that so Mm -hmm. that your embryos don't get destroyed because Mm -hmm. you didn't pay. Right. And then let's say overseas, if you're going to freeze overseas, do they typically get stored overseas or can you bring them back? Can you ship them back to the U.S.? How does that work if you plan on freezing overseas? Yeah, you can do both. Um, You know, the clinics in Mexico work the same way as here. They have, you know, a back a back storage facility where they keep the, the, the embryos or, you know, the gametes. Um, and then if you chose to transfer them back here, 
right? You can absolutely do that. I mean, there's companies that specialize in this, you know, there's some very well-known huge companies that do it. Um, and you know, usually at least the last time I checked, the cost is around 1500 to $2,000 to ship it from Mexico back to the United States. Um, and they ship it, um, you know, using tanks and all of that stuff, something to keep in mind. And unfortunately something, you know, I have seen is that when you're transporting embryos, whether it's within America, right? Like I had my embryos stored at a clinic. I transferred them over to Reprotec. Um, like I did it in two shipments, right? Because if heaven forbid the truck has mm. an accident, the tank dies, whatever it is, I don't want to lose all of my gametes at that point, right? I want to ship it in two shipments so that I know at least if one falls, I have another 50% chance. So I always mm-hmm. tell people if you're planning on transporting, I know it may be more money, but in the long run, that more money could really like be the begin- the difference between your own genetic family or not your own genetic mm-hmm. family. Um, so, you know, that's definitely something to keep in mind. But, you know, um, transferring it from Mexico or overseas to America, um, you know, the, the considerations would be where it gets a little complicated in a sense um, is if what happens if you want to use a surrogate? Right, mm-hmm. like, and you've got the embryos that were created in Mexico, and now you want to use a surrogate in America. You need to make sure that whatever clinics you're using overseas, whether it's in Mexico, Cyprus, well, Ukraine at the time, whatever it was, that they're following FDA protocols. They may not mm-hmm. be FDA approved because it's very difficult to get FDA approved overseas, but um, are they using the FDA? blood kits are they you know sending it in this correct protocol are they testing for the things that the fda is requiring and the clinics will be able to tell you what they're doing and how they're doing it and if it aligns with that especially to go to a good clinic um and then at that point you know there are doctors here in america who have no problem accepting embryos or gametes from overseas um and then you know you tell the the surrogate and um you know she'll sign a waiver saying she understands it wasn't done in an fda approved lab here in the united states but the chances of there's something being wrong are almost minimal and so mm-hmm. um yeah we've had tons of cases like that mm-hmm. so would you say that if you were considering doing um ivf overseas or you know any type of um, egg freezing or anything like that overseas that maybe you should consult an attorney before doing all of that to just in case any of these things come up, then you can pre-plan some of these things and kind of have the forethought to have some of these extra steps in place. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, I work with a ton of people in that aspect from a consulting aspect of things because there are so many moving pieces right um, overseas. Um, And I work with people who are doing just plain IVF to egg freezing to surrogacy, right? And Mm -hmm. each one of those, it requires just something different. Um, And yeah, I mean, I work on a consulting aspect and it's amazing the stuff that comes up, um, you know, and it's like, okay, well, what do we do now? Um, And you always want to kind of have somebody in your back pocket who's based in the United States, especially if you're based in the United States, um, who also is understands international fertility um, and is okay with international fertility and understands the legal rules and the ramifications of international fertility um, because that's really, really important. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about some considerations if you're doing um, IVF in the U.S. Um, You talked Mm -hmm. about, you know, if you're partnered, maybe considered um, maybe 
partnered, not married, or I guess it doesn't really matter. Even if you're freezing your eggs, you know, keep a little batch for yourself. Do you have any other things that you can think of, like considerations we should uh, for legally that we should think about, like when we're doing um, IVF um, in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I think right now everybody's biggest concern is what's going to be happening with Roe v. Wade, right? Right. Because even though Roe v. Wade specifically deals with abortion, right, Mm -hmm. in the aspect of things, of course, if you really boil it down to it, it comes down to embryos, right? And so, Mm -hmm. like, for example, Oklahoma just passed a law saying that there will be no abortion from the time the egg gets fertilized with the sperm. That means literally just no abortion, period, whatsoever. Um, And that actually plays a huge role with assisted reproduction because when people are creating embryos, right, right now what we're doing um, for cost purposes, right, and for success purposes is let's say, for example, you know, you have 15 eggs, right, and you guys go ahead and you create embryos from those 15 eggs and you land up with, I don't know, eight embryos, for example, five embryos. You know, mm-hmm. some people may have five children, but, yeah. you know, if a, if a person is doing two children, right, let's say you've got maybe two or three embryos left over, you're not going to be able to discard them, right, mm-hmm. or, or, or get rid of them in a place like Oklahoma, Arizona will follow suit, Texas, like these places are going to, you know, cut down on that. And so that's now something that clinics and doctors and intended parents are going to have to take into consideration because... Mm-hmm. If you can't, right, um, destroy the embryos that mm-hmm. you don't need anymore, you're certainly not going to be able to freeze them forever. And a lot of people are not comfortable donating their embryos mm-hmm. to another person or couple of science, right? Mm-hmm. So now the question becomes, what do we do? So this is really going to start playing a role. Um, and I think what's going to happen is that, you know, you're going to take five eggs and create two embryos and you're going to have to build each time like that um which is going to take longer you're not going to be able to see all the embryos and like the success of all of them right like if you've just chosen five eggs we can't look at egg quality today yet right right? so Mm -hmm. we don't know if those are good eggs or not we're just literally going in blind right Mm -hmm. and what how is that going to look then in terms Mm. of you know making sure that we can have healthy children and all of that stuff so i think that that's really going to start playing a a role um a much bigger role than you know i think we can even begin to see from this perspective now yeah i I wonder if at that point in time they may just start freezing eggs and then just you know what i mean if you're limited to how many embryos you can create then you might at least be able to do the egg retrieval freeze as many eggs as you can and and right. it might take twice as long to like thaw and fertilize right. and then biopsy right. and wait or whatever i mean i don't know if biopsy will still be something that we're able to do or anything like that i mean i don't know <laughs> there's yeah. so crazy. many it's questions yeah, yeah that will come up but i mean you bring up a really good point and and there's some controversy about whether or not some people should consider transferring their embryos to quote unquote friendlier states and stuff like that. I mean, I th- think that's a really yeah. difficult decision to make and difficult conversation to have. Um, and it is it's a lot, I mean, you know. Yeah. And it's it costs a lot of money. Yeah. Now. now you're going into the whole transporting thing, you know, and I mean, I think that, um, you know, international is going to increase because of this now, because mm-hmm. even though Mexico, for example, is a very, very Catholic society, right? 
abortion is still legal in Mexico. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was looking at it. I think it's up to 12 weeks, if I'm correct. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and you can discard embryos in Mexico. And so it's like, hold on one second, right? Here's this very Catholic country, and they're still allowing this. Um, and so why, why would I not? This gives me the best option, right? And to mm-hmm. find the highest quality embryos without having to do two at a time and, you know, take the the gamble of it. Should I use this one or should we, you know, do it all or mm-hmm. should we transfer? It? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see an increase there too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's definitely tricky. Oh, I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's trickier for people who are currently in IVF or people about to start, <laughs> you know, because like <laughs> there's like people like me who, you know, I have one frozen embryo. It's not like I have 15 or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, well, I'm I'm making them as I go kind of thing because of my poor egg quality. But people who are first starting who may be younger, who might make more embryos. I mean, it's a tough space to be in. And um, especially right now, I think sometimes too, just consulting with an attorney might be helpful to say, all right, what are the things I should really be thinking about, particularly mm-hmm. in my state or whatever. Um, Absolutely. And And what are the different options that I have based on my finances, based on my personal, you know, experience, based on my, you know, your marital status, whatever it may be, right? These are all really important questions that I don't think anybody should, you know, really have to think through these on their own in a way because I, unless you are super, super, you know, understanding of all the implications that come across this. I really think that an attorney can help figure out the best solution for you and yourself um, mm-hmm. to make sure that you're in the best position, even in the long run, like 10, 15 years from now. Right? Yeah. Well, because the reality is, at least, you know, for instance, if we had, you know, frozen our eggs in our 20s and then let's say mm-hmm. finally we're ready to have children in our 40s, a lot can happen mm-hmm. in 20 years. <laughs> As we're figuring out, a lot changes in even like a few months. So, you know, a lot can change and there's a lot of things to think about. So it's nice to have someone who can kind of like think about your future uh, or help you at least think about your future. Um, So we kind of talked about egg freezing. We talked about IVF. Um, Now, what about surrogacy and or embryo adoption? Are there things we should be thinking about? legally in those respects? Yeah, so that's really where a huge portion of the legality comes into play, right? Mm-hmm. Because now you're dealing with a third party that is not you and your partner or you yourself, right? So, um, you know, Hollywood, unfortunately, does like to make it out that, you know, surrogates like to run away with children and, right. um, you know, egg donors like come off the you know, the children and try and take this child away from their parents. And in reality, that is not the case. There was actually a study done, um, you know, a few years back where they looked at like 25,000 surrogacy cases. Um, They looked at, you know, this concept of the surrogate is stealing the child and, you know, is is running away with the child. And what they actually found was that there was three potential cases like that, okay? And usually when that happens, and, you know, we were taking in statistics of traditional surrogacy where, you're using, you know, the actual surrogate's egg and mm-hmm. then, you know, the pot and now the pot, a person's sperm, right? Whereas we, we don't really do that today as mm-hmm. much. Um, 
But when you're doing gestational surrogacy, which is, you know, embryos have been created outside of the surrogate and then the surrogate is, you know, carrying the baby for somebody, but there's zero genetic connection to the mm-hmm. surrogate. Um, so three surrogates in the study, you know, tried to leave with the child. But what we actually saw was eight intended parents actually abandoned their children um, for whatever reason it was. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time there wasn't the genetic testing that we have today or, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it was a really interesting statistic because it's like actually – hold on one second <laughs> intended parents seem to be worse than surrogates but you know for hollywood surrogates make a much better story mm-hmm. so um you know that's definitely just something that i always tell my clients like please because you know clients come to me all the time and they're like we're really nervous about you know the surrogate leaving and what happens if she does and i'm like okay that's like back up here and you mm-hmm. know, thank hollywood for what it's done and mm-hmm. you know face the realities of what is actually going on mm-hmm. um, and the same thing with egg donation right or any sort of donation sperm donation embryo donation right um so i mean embryo donation is you know there's zero genetic connection to you you may carry the baby as your own but somebody has donated their embryos to you mm-hmm. um and you're now going to bring up this child you know um as as your own mm-hmm. um and the same thing goes there. I mean, egg donors, you know, specifically or any sort of donors, they're really not there to figure out how many kids they can make, you know, in the world or, you know, I want to have these children and come off to them. You know, if you think about it, a lot of the time egg donors are, you know, early 20s, right, around about. So mm-hmm. these are young girls who are going through college, going through grad school, um, you know, they get to do something really great and allow people to have a family that they otherwise maybe wouldn't have been able to have. And, you know, they also get a significant amount of, you know, money for donating their eggs. Um, and so it's kind of like a double win situation, but mm-hmm. these girls are in their twenties. And when I speak to them, cause I do a lot of work with donors, none of them are saying to me, yeah, I can't wait until that kid is eight years old, you know, and I'm going to come off to that child and, you know, try mm-hmm. and uh, infiltrate my way into that life. Um, mm-hmm. That's just not what their intention is at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some donors are really happy if the intended parent wants them to be a part of the life just so that the child, you know, donor conceived child knows that they have a safe space to speak to somebody about why is it that I can play piano and I have an amazing musical ear and both my, you know, my parents are tone deaf or, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, why is it that I have a birthmark or blue eyes or, you know, it's just understanding kind of where you come from, from a genetic aspect of things, but mm-hmm. donors do not and will not ever take the place of the parents who brought up that child. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that, I, I answer a lot when clients come to me and, um, you know, especially women, we see this a lot, you know, women are like, is somebody going to take over my place as mom? And mm-hmm. it's like, no, no, no. Like, you know, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and from another legal consideration aspect of things, unfortunately I do see some couples who are refusing or will not, you know, um, disclose to their kid that they were created by using an egg donor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very problematic um, mm-hmm. down the road. Uh, you know, if you look at the things that we have now, taking into account 23andMe or Ancestry mm-hmm. DNA, right? Even look at what happened with COVID, right? We had mm-hmm. these COVID vaccines, so vaccination cards, right? Where, hey, you need to be in the database. We need to see where you are, right? 
what's going to happen in 20 years from now? I have no idea, but mm-hmm. I know technology is going to be way ahead than what it is now. And, you know, unfortunately, we have seen some cases where kids went on to 23andMe, you know, they they put their name, put their DNA in, and then, oh, wait, mm-hmm. hold on one second. What's happening? You know, my dad isn't my dad. My mom mm-hmm. isn't my mom. Wait, why do I have all of these cousins from another place, right? Mm-hmm. And what we see is when, when I speak to the children, like because I've mediated a few of these cases, unfortunately, right? And we're talking... Mm-hmm. The donations happened 10 or 15 years ago, right? So we're in different space. But when I speak to the kids and I'm like, what are you so upset about? Like, were your parents bad parents? Like, what was it? And it's like, no, of course my parents are not bad parents. But it's more the deceit, the lies mm-hmm. that I've now found out at 25 or 30, right? That they lied to me my whole life. If they had just disclosed it to me, right, that would have been okay and I wouldn't care. But now that they lied to me, my whole life is a lie. And that's mm-hmm. how they view it. Mm-hmm. Um and that's where it's really detrimental. Um, and so I always tell clients, if you're using a donor of any sort, please mm-hmm. do not keep that from your child. You know, there's ways to do it and there's ways to explain, look at what we have to go through to get you. Do you know mm-hmm. how happy we are that you are a part of our life? Mm-hmm. Um, but don't lie to them about mm-hmm. it because they will find out. Well, mm-hmm. And that will be more detrimental to you than telling them that they were born from a donor. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're learning more and more about that. I think the conversation has shifted. I think 20 years ago. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now back to our episode. It was different, but I mean, you know, you might still have people who are advising other people like, uh, maybe, you know, don't say anything or, you know, wait until the right time. But you know, I don't know that there ever is a right time. <laughs> there isn't like a perfect time <laughs> to no, share that information. A, no, there's always a Band-Aid to rip off with, you know, something like that. But I, I always say once the kid understands, you know, like they have an understanding of what, how do babies come about and, you know, mm-hmm. how does this work? And, like, you know when your child is mature enough to some degree, whether it's 8, whether it's 10, whether it's 12, that they can begin to understand. And I always tell parents, like, please don't try and tackle this on your own. This is such a huge issue in a sense to tell your child there are so many unbelievable psychologists today that, you know, you can help and they can provide you with the right tools. You know, there's going to be books coming out more on this topic Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But don't try and do this by yourself because you're not the first person to disclose this information to your child. You will not be the last. So rather Mm -hmm. help people who have done it with people multiple times before. Yeah, for sure. Well, are there, because, you know, sometimes we can get, eggs uh, donated from an egg bank and sometimes we can use um, an agency like an egg donor agency are there things we have to think about if we plan on using an agency yeah so you know there's a lot of moving pieces when you're coming from an agency right sperm banks most of the time it's sperm banks yes there's egg banks Um, you know they have the consent forms already in there because they've bought the sperm or the eggs from the sperm donor or the egg donor right and now the the bank itself owns those eggs so now they're selling those eggs or those sperm to the people right it's a typical transaction in a sense Um, 
And so you're really abiding by whatever the rules are of the bank. Whereas when you're using an agency, it's very different because now you're actually, there is no bank. It's going to be a direct contractual relationship between the agency and the intended parents who are going to help the intended parents find the right match. And then the intended parents and the donor or the surrogate, right? And that's where the legal part comes in. And that's where the legal part is a huge, huge role in this. Um, you know, and so if we start at the very beginning of what do I look for in an agency, first and foremost, you want to go with a reputable agency, right? There are places now where you can find reputable agencies like GoStalk, for example, as you know, a great resource. And then there's also just like really good agencies, right? There's Facebook groups that talk about different agencies and people's experiences with them. And they're pretty accurate, um, you know? And then of course, like me, for example, I work with some unbelievable agencies that I know give really, have really good donors or really good surrogates. And I trust them wholeheartedly that my client is going to be taken care of well when using these, um, you know, these agencies. Um, but I always make sure that, you know, when I work with agencies, um, one of the things I would tell parents is try not to put a down payment, um, with an agency that is going to tell you, Hey, you know, I'm going to be able to match you in a year or something like that. Say, that's great. Well, then when you find a match, send it to me, I'll be happy to pay the agency fee at that point. Because what we see, you know, from a legal perspective is that somebody will go and will be really excited and will sign with the first agency that they match with. And then they're now $7,000 to that agency, for example, or 5,000 or whatever the agency charges. And oh, one month, two months, five months, six months, and the agency still hasn't come back with a surrogate or a donor for them. And now it's like, well, now I'm wasting time. Like I want to go to another agency, mm -hmm. but now you've put $7,000 down, right? You don't want to just walk away from that. Um, so that is something that I would say, if you can find an agency and there are a lot of them that allow you to look at the database that keep you included, but you don't have to put anything down. If I was going through this, that would be the route I would take, right? Mm -hmm. um, just because it gives you opportunity then to work with multiple agencies. Um, they're all kind of looking out for you, but at the same time, right, they know that if they find you a great surrogate or a great donor, you're going to, you know, work with them, right? Mm -hmm. um, another big thing when looking for an agency is how is payment given, right? I always like to have an agency fee let's call it $30,000 that some agencies charge. Um, how is that fee paid to the agency over the course of the journey? So, you know, I like to have it upon match. Once you find a surrogate you like or a donor you like, you know, the, um, the, you, you pay the agency, you know, the first 10,000, for example, and then upon medical clearance. So you have to make sure that the surrogate or the donor is medically cleared before you can move on. Okay, then once she's medically cleared, you pay the second $10,000, right? And then the last portion of it, you know, is off the legal, or you can break it down and say, okay, we're gonna pay $5,000 once legal is completed, and then we're gonna pay another $5,000, you know, at month six or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the reason why breaking that down into the minimum three sections is so important mm -hmm. is because it keeps the agency on their game, right, throughout mm -hmm. their journey. Because, of course, they want the money, right, at right. the end. And as a result of that, it allows everybody to be on the same page. Now, if you're right. working with a good agency, they're going to be good no matter what. Right. But, you know, for other people who don't know anything about the agency, that's really what I would recommend. Mm -hmm. um, 
So from an agency perspective, that's what I would look at. And is that similar if you go abroad? I know you're really passionate about, you know, um, access to care abroad and that sort of thing. Do you find that this the system or the process uh, is similar abroad or is it slightly different? Does it work slightly differently if you go abroad? Yeah, it works very differently. So obviously going abroad is much more affordable than here, right? Like let's say, for example, take a same sex, like, you know, male couple, right? They're going to need to have um, a surrogate and an egg donor, right? Mm -hmm. At the minimum in the United States, if you're going through agencies for both of them, you're looking at like $200,000 to $250,000 at the minimum once everything is taken into account, which is... I mean, it's a quarter of a million dollars here that we're talking about, right? It's no small piece of money. Um, Even if you're going independent, like let's say you use somebody that you found yourself on Facebook Mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, you're still looking at probably 120,000 to, you know, 180,000 by the time you're done. Whereas overseas, right? Like Mexico specifically, I like working in Mexico. And the reason being is the Supreme Court of Mexico has actually deemed having a family a legal right, which means that surrogacy is now fully legal and like stamped by the Supreme Court of Mexico. So anytime a you know smaller city, if they choose to not grant surrogacy for whatever reason that they you know come up with, just like judges here in America do, let's mm-hmm. just you know remember that. Mm-hmm. It goes straight to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court looks at it, calls the judge, you know, an idiot and overrules <laughs> their decision and mm-hmm. gives the stamp of approval of surrogacy. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is new to Mexico. Mexico surrogacy used to be illegal for a long mm-hmm. time. And there was there was reasons for it. People were taking mm-hmm. advantage of, you know, the women in Mexico and in India and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, they decided that wasn't going to happen anymore. But now that they've made a legal ruling on it, there is a lot more um, regulation. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a lot more understanding now of how it works. Um, and so if you're looking for an egg donor and a surrogate in Mexico, you're looking between like, Fifty to seventy thousand dollars for everything. That's mm-hmm. donor compensation, medical costs, um, you know, um, living costs, like agency fees, legal fees, like everything. So it's you know one third of the price, and your baby, as long as you are an American citizen, becomes an American citizen. So mm-hmm. it's like, well, why would you not? And honestly, Mexico is closer than flying sometimes from California to New York, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, those are, that's why I'm such a huge proponent of being able to look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Do you, I know you talk about Mexico a lot because it's so close. Are there any other countries yeah. that you like working in? Um, I mean, Ukraine was wonderful right now. That is just completely yeah. off the table. Um, other than that, no, um, oh, okay. you know, Cyprus, a lot of people do stuff in Cyprus, um, but Mm -hmm. there is no legislation in Cyprus. Um, So Mm. if at some point the government chooses to just say no, they can say no, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like Russia did, right, with adoptions. Like, so Mexico to me is like the top. I mean, Colombia is actually really good too. They've been doing surrogacy now for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a a couple places, but um, if it was me, I would just do Mexico. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah. Um, do, does Mexico do embryo adoption or anything like that, too? Or is that just mostly a U.S. kind of thing? Um, 
I mean, I think you're talking like if people can donate embryos to each other. Yeah, like if, let's say they did, you know, if, let's say, and this might get a little complicated. So as I'm thinking of this out, this might sound complicated. Let's say a family created, decided to do IVF abroad in Mexico, created embryos, and then, you know, needed a surrogate or whatever. So the embryos stayed in Mexico and then they completed their family. They're happy. They have embryos left over and they want to donate those embryos. I guess I don't. Would that then stay in Mexico and get donated in Mexico? Or would that then come to the U.S. so that, you know, people can adopt those embryos? And I, I'm guessing this goes all through an agency and everything as well. Um, does that happen? It's a really convoluted question. I understand. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, it, it happens. Um, embryo donation is way more common in America. Um, oh, okay. In Mexico, I would say it's it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. Like, but if you find embryos here, for example, you can ship those embryos down to Mexico and do the the IVF transfer. You know, the embryo transfer down to Mexico, which is you know eight thousand dollars versus mm-hmm. twenty thousand dollars that people charge here, right? Um so people do that all the time or people will take their surrogate, American surrogate, down to Mexico, will do the embryo transfer down in Mexico, totally legal. And then the American surrogate comes back here and, you know, gives birth here. Totally legal and it will save you, you know, a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, and, and from the legal perspective, right? You need to make sure that you're covered at every single point. That is like my highest, highest priority when I work with clients. So, you know, if you take um, an egg donor, for example, right, how does the legal process work? Um, And that's the last piece of the puzzle before you actually have the green light to begin medical um, procedures on the donor, right? And so... You know, I will get the information that I need from the agency to draft the contract. So whether this is the donor's information, you know, how much she's getting paid, what are her blackout dates, if she has any, like where she's just simply not able to because she's in school or whatever it may mm-hmm. be, and a bunch mm-hmm. of other things that, you know, I'm, I'll take into consideration into the contract. And then I will go ahead, I draft the contract. Um, you know, I like to work pretty quick. So I like to get the first draft to parents within 48 hours. I know mm-hmm. I am the lost pot before they really get to do this. And so I Mm -hmm. don't want to be the one that delays. Um, And so I send it through to them. We review it together. You know, I answer their questions, concerns, make changes based on what they want. And then once we've established that everything's good, the donor has to be represented by her own separate counsel as well. Right. Mm. That's really, really important because you never want a donor or a surrogate to ever be able to claim uh, ignorance. Right. Mm-hmm. In the sense of nobody explained this contract to me. I didn't know I was signing away all of my rights. Right. We mm-hmm. never want that to happen. Mm-hmm. So every donor and every surrogate has to have their own attorney. So I'll send it through to that attorney. That attorney will then review it with the surrogate or the donor. Right. And then they usually come back with some sort of changes. Sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes it's not. It just really depends on the donor and the attorney. And then I, you know, I call it the ping pong match. At that point, I kind of explain <laughs> it to the intended parents. It ping pongs back and forth. They ask me if this is okay. I tell them, yes, I approve it, right? Or, oh, this is a really odd change here. Like, you know, what 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 is this about? Where is this coming from, right? And um, those are when the cases can get kind of tricky. Um, but I always, you know, try and, well, I, I always do, and I always try and remind sometimes donors, attorneys, or surrogates, attorneys, hey, listen, 
This isn't our journey. This is the parent's journey and this is the donor's journey. We may want certain things in there because we can understand from a legal perspective, okay, you know, if this is mine, I would be a hard set on this. But yeah. if they're okay with whatever it is that they choose to be okay with, that's fine. I My only duty is to explain to them what those legal ramifications may look like. If mm-hmm. I don't think that they're really going to be disastrous, then I will tell them if you're okay with you know these ramifications there, that's totally fine. I'm just letting you know, right? Like for example, you don't want to tell your kid that they're going to be from a donor or you don't want to share your information with the, mm-hmm. with the donor. Totally respectful on that. A hundred percent. Just understand this is what it's going to look like in the future, potentially. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once everybody agrees on those changes, uh, we send through the legal clearance to the clinic um, after everybody signs. And I pretty much tell the clinic, hey, everybody understands what's required of them. You know, please begin the medical procedures. Mm-hmm. And that's how, how that looks from a legal mm-hmm. perspective. Do you, are there any differences between uh, um, heterosexual couples and same-sex couples? Are there different legal considerations? Um, it depends on the states, um, you know, mm-hmm. f- on the state that they're in. From a mm-hmm. donation perspective, yes and no, right? Um, usually not in the sense because donation is so much more straightforward than surrogacy. You don't need a pre-birth order or a post-birth order, right? You don't need to adopt the child, right? You're simply taking somebody's eggs and those eggs are becoming yours, right? So mm-hmm. from that perspective, no. From a surrogacy perspective, absolutely, right? So take Florida, for example. Florida is an interesting state because, you know, they have a very clear ruling differential between married and unmarried couples. Same sex or not, that doesn't matter, but it's married versus unmarried. So, um, you know, what happens in that case, right? So Florida is a a post-birth state. So what that means is that, you know, you'll do surrogacy, everything happens in the surrogacy, and then um, the surrogate gives birth. And only at that point can you actually get the judgment post-birth, right, off Mm. the birth of the child. And then the non-genetic parent, right, like let's say you take a heterosexual couple, you used an egg donor, a nice surrogate. So the intended mother has no genetic relation to that child and she didn't give birth to that child. And Florida looks at it and is like, okay, well, in order for you to be legally considered the parent of this child, you actually need to adopt this child, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we call a step-parent adoption, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And Florida is a state that very clearly differentiates that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And step-parent adoptions, I would recommend for anybody going through assisted reproduction. and, you know, take California, for example, right? You t- can put anybody you want on your birth certificate, anybody. You can have two people, three people, four people. California does not care who you are considering to be the parents of this child, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. But other states don't necessarily see the same way as mm-hmm. we know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a step-parent adoption is really important because think back to when same-sex marriage was not legalized across the United States, right? You could get married in California. You could get divorced in California because California legally recognized same-sex marriage, right? But in states that did not, you were not considered a married couple even if you got married in California, Right. Because they were like, we do not have to represent that. We do not have to look at that. And like if somebody moved to a state that, you know, they could literally just be considered not married. Right. And um, 
a step parent adoption works similarly in the sense of a birth certificate is like a marriage certificate. It's given through a registrar and it's like, cool, we're married here. Like, that's great. Or, okay, our baby was born here. That's great. These are the parents, right? But in other states that don't recognize more than two parents, right, what are you going to do? Right. In in a country, if you're traveling and they are really against same sex marriage or they're against assisted reproduction or whatever it may be, what's going to happen then? And so a step parent adoption actually is a judge's stamp in a, in a, you apply for an adoption in a court where you live and the judge says, yep, I, you know, see Jane Smith and John Smith as the parents of this child he or she gives the stamp of approval. And then that is actually a court judgment, which means that any state, even if you do not recognize four parents as the parents of those children or whatever it may be, has to recognize that judgment through something called the full faith and credit clause. But it literally means like, you can't deny me. And so it's really, really important. Um, you know, but some states require it, like Florida, and other states like California are like, if you want to do it, that's great. The presumption is that you're already the parent. But, you know, you need to think about, well, are you always going to be in California? What about all these people who now moved, you know, to Florida or moved to Texas or moved wherever? Is that going to hold true? No, it's not, right? So um, that's that's something that I do a lot of. Mm-hmm. This is so fascinating. I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> I can hear you talking about this all day long. Um, Yeah. So we have a couple of submitted questions from listeners. Um, Let's see. Oh, this one's interesting. I think this is a tough question to answer. But uh, one of the (laughs) questions is, what is considered malpractice in the fertility world? So it's a it's a great question. Um, So malpractice in the fertility world can be broken down into you know, a few different topics. Of course, if you think of malpractice, right, we can think of it from the the basic understanding of medical malpractice, right? A doctor goes and does the retrieval, didn't monitor you correctly, right? You overstimulate and you have to have like a full hysterectomy, okay? Um, that is a very, very outlier case. Yeah, I'm just putting that out there. But it, it allows you to understand the concept of, you know, a doctor really messed up and because they messed up so badly and they didn't do what any reasonable doctor would do, right? Um, they're now liable for medical malpractice. So that's mm-hmm. any doctor in any sort of, you know, medical Specialty. setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From a fertility perspective and what we're seeing more of now, unfortunately, is um, doctors, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, right? They were using their own sperm, Mm -hmm. claiming it was the husband's sperm, right? Or the partner's sperm. Um, And lo and behold, the DNA platforms are now showing that that is not the case. Mm -hmm. Those are massive, massive malpractice suits, right? Mm -hmm. On so many different levels. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. medical malpractice, that's breach of contract, that's fraud. There is a thousand things there. and, you know, I've done a few of those and um, it's it's terrible because how do you break this to everybody involved, yeah. right? It's just, and who's to blame? No one but the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's terrible. Um, mm-hmm. The other ones that we see are, you know, clinics do not have the correct safety protocols in place on what mm-hmm. happens when you're freezing gametes at these clinics, right? You mm-hmm. should have alarms. There should be enough, you know, um, I think it's nitrogen in the tanks, right, in order to make sure that it is safe and sound so that if the mm-hmm. alarm 
fails and the power dies for 24 hours at least, right? By the time they come in the next morning, they're like, oh my gosh, and they can fill up, you know, the tanks with whatever it is that they need. You know, they should be usually like a two-week supply, okay, Mm -hmm. of everything. Now, we have seen cases where that was not the case, right? The OHSU case was a huge case, right? Ohio State University, like that was a really, really big um, uh, issue where they didn't have the safety protocols in place. And unfortunately, a lot of people lost their gametes, Um, you know, and it's rare, but it happens, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, another aspect of malpractice is from an agency perspective, right? You mm-hmm. sign an agreement with that agency. That agency is required to uphold certain things that they are required to do. They're supposed to find you a good surrogate. That is, you know, they're supposed to make sure that the surrogate is attending her doctor's appointments and is taking medication and is doing everything that they're supposed to do. They, as an agency, are required to make sure that the intended parents have enough money in the escrow account, right? They're required to do all of these things. And some agencies are lazy. They think they can get away with it. And then, unfortunately, mm-hmm. now it's a breach of contract, right? So, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, I've sued a couple agencies from that perspective, right? I never like to do that. I never want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're taking advantage of clients now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then from a, you know, intended parent donor surrogacy perspective, right, where you are direct connections between the intended parents and the donor directed um, intended parents and surrogate, you're looking at, um, you know, for example, a donor decided to have unprotected sex. She is not allowed to do that. Like from the time she signs that agreement, especially from the time she starts her injections, it is very mm-hmm. clear she's not allowed to have unprotected sex. And then from the time she starts her injections, she's not allowed to have sex, period, right? Mm-hmm. We've had donors who thought that they could get away with it. They had a night out on the town, right, or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. And um, lo and behold, they got an STD. Mm -hmm. Well, now what? Now what are we going to do? Because now we can't use your eggs. You breach contract. You breach protocol. Now what are we going to do? Oh, guess what? The intended parents can sue you for Mm -hmm. all the money that they have spent on you now. They can garnish your wages if you're an Mm -hmm. American citizen. Like, do you understand the implications of that, right? Like, it's rare that this happens, especially mm-hmm. if you go with a good agency, mm-hmm. but it happens. And, you know, I'm one of the only attorneys in the space that does litigation. Um, I was doing litigation before I got into fertility. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I don't enjoy it because I don't want to ever be suing anybody in this space. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you know, everybody has to live with their consequences. Yeah, I see. Okay. And then another question is, can you limit the number of times your egg donor donates? Um, They don't want a ton of half siblings. Yeah. So ASRM or SOTS guidelines for how many times a donor can donate is six. That's the maximum amount usually. Sometimes we'll see seven or eight, but that's usually for a sibling journey, right? So a couple Mm -hmm. has used a donor. They maybe didn't get great embryos for whatever reason um and then they're like hey donna can you please donate one more time so we can have a sibling you know that's Mm -hmm. completely genetically related Mm -hmm. um but you know the reason why it's capped at six is because when you look at people who donate more and the more they donate what you start to see is of course you're taking hormones into your body i mean nobody can deny that right and the the concept of complications 
gets higher with every donation. And so when, mm-hmm. you know, the medical professionals in the space have looked at it, they've decided that six is probably the safest place. And over and above that, you're kind of starting to get into gray waters. And again, of course, you don't want a hundred children running around yeah. out there, right? Because somebody's decided to donate their eggs 50 times or whatever. It mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one last question. This one says, I'm not married, but boyfriend said it was okay to make embryos, but can't use it if we split up. How do we document this? I agree with the position not to use it if we break up. So um, more of how we can document this legally. See, and this is exactly what I was talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, um, where you have couples just like this. Um, you know, this is absolutely a case for an attorney to get involved in um, and to draft up an agreement that sets out very, very clear, you know, boundaries. Because it's like, okay, well, what happens if you break up? What happens if he dies? Would you be allowed to use it then? Does he give you permission to use it then? What happens if you both die? Are your grandparents or your parents, you know, allowed to use them to become grandparents? I don't know what happens then, right? So this is definitely a a piece that clinic disposition forms simply do not take into account. They are awful. They ask you four questions. Do you want to donate? Do you want to discard? Do you want to donate to science, Um, you know, or um, donate to a family member? Like that's it. And that is just not sufficient. Um, So for a case like this, I would definitely say get a lawyer involved. You'll draft up a contract. It will be made very clear what there is. And then again, if you're, you know, as the woman, feel free to say, that's cool. I'm down with whatever we want to do. But when we do this, I also want to save some eggs for myself so that if we do break up, I have a safety you know, measure for myself too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many good, th- I could talk to you all day long. <laughs> this is so much fun. Um, okay. So uh, along this journey, when should we start or who should look for an attorney? Like what, at what point should people say, you know what? I really think I need some uh, counsel. Like at what point would you say, you know, you should, but maybe you don't need to. Like who's a good person to seek counsel for? I would say that anybody starting this journey, like the earlier you can get a legal advisor behind you and, you know, in your back pocket, um, the better it is. And the reason for that is because if you're just starting out this journey, right, which agencies are you going to go to? How do you know if it's good? What about clinics? Some people have never done this. They just know, like, you know, a same-sex couple, they know that they need an egg donor and they know that they need a surrogate, but they haven't gone to see a fertility doctor because they're like, well, what is it going to tell us, right? Like, yeah. you know, so um, I have a lot of clients that come from me at the very beginning and that way I'm able to set them up for success from the very beginning all the way through their journey. Mm-hmm. On the other side, times, you know, like maybe you've been trying to have a baby and it's not working for you. And now, you know, the doctors told you it's probably time to start looking for an egg donor. It's time to start looking for a surrogate. I say get an attorney on board at that point because, again, we have the resources. And I, specifically me, I can't talk for other attorneys, but I have really tried to make it a huge part of my practice that I have all the best resources out there to connect them with whatever it is that they need, depending on their financial resources, right, to set them up for success. Because that's my number one goal here is, okay, this is your financial position. This is what I would suggest. And these are who I would suggest it with. Um, So yeah, the earlier, the better. And you know, for girls who are freezing their eggs, right, if, you know, doing it here in the United States is 
exorbitant or crazy. Like I've actually launched a company, right? Um, it's called Ignite Fertility and it actually works as a concierge service to get you with the best clinics in Mexico. And this is for anybody, honestly, going through IVF or anything like that. Um, but you know, I, I've created this incredible program that missed everything that I didn't have when I mm-hmm. went through my egg freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, bring down six girls, do it all together, stay in this amazing villa on the beach, have the most incredible, you know, medical experience. And, you know, there's a chef, there's a yoga instructor. So it's like, why would you not make this a really enjoyable experience? Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, versus going to a stale clinic and you're doing (laughs) it by yourself and you are in pain and you don't have anybody to cry with, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever else it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that program. So do like if you have um, a group of people you want to freeze your eggs with, you go all together down there for the duration, like you do stimulation, like the whole stimulation protocol while you're down there. Or do you only go down there for the retrieval and you do your stimulation protocol here in the U.S.? How does that work? Yeah. So it's actually half and half. So you, um, you know, the main clinic is the one in Mexico, um, that I work with. The doctors are amazing. The staff is unbelievable. I love them. Um, and so I've partnered here with a couple of clinics throughout the United States, all over in the main cities. Um, Mm -hmm. and what it is is that you will start here. Um, and for, you know, seven to eight days, you're going to be in the United States. They'll do the first three ultrasounds, the first three days of blood work, specifically for egg freezing, right? Make sure that you're on track, you know, um, the doctor in Mexico is getting all of your results from that aspect. So you can really, you know, he's, a, he's the main doctor. So he's the one, um, telling you exactly how much to take, changing your medication protocol if need be. And then the clinics here in America, are making sure that like you're safe. And then, um, You'll go down to Mexico on day eight, around about, and then you're going to be in Mexico for about eight to 10 days, just depending on, you know, how well your body's responding and how well you respond to the retrieval and all of that. Um, and yeah, you go down with, you know, six girls, 10 girls, however many people you want. Like I have people, you know, who are in business school and the girls are like, we want to freeze our eggs. Summer's coming up, you know, mm-hmm. whenever it may be. And, um, it's a vacation. Like why make this miserable? This should not be miserable. You're doing something awesome. You might as well Mm -hmm. make it awesome. Um, and yeah, so I created this program where I envisioned it when I did it and I always wanted to do it. And it's half the price of freezing your eggs here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Right. And you get everything and more, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that anybody could ask for. So yeah, I mean, um, I have partnerships with hotels, with um, different sort of villas in Mexico, all on the beach. They have their private own pools. Everything's included, so you pay one price. You're not going to get hit with a million bills coming your way. Um, so you know, you know exactly what it is. I've partnered with Future Family for fertility financing. Um, mm. So yeah, it's an amazing program. I'm super excited about it. Um, but mm. it falls in line with my mission of being able to provide affordable services to people in a really fun, awesome way. Mm-hmm. And do the eggs stay there in Mexico or do they get shipped back here in the U.S.? The eggs stay there in Mexico. They're, okay. you know, they're in an amazingly safe place in the clinic, just like if you had to freeze here at a clinic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, if you want to transfer them over here, 
feel free. I have partnerships with the different, you know, transportation companies, like all of that stuff. Um, but what we're, you know, what the vision is, is that you're going to freeze your eggs. If you need them, you can go back down to Mexico and you can create the embryos there and you can do the embryo transfer there. And guess what? That's going to be one quarter of the price of you doing it here. So, you know, the concept is, is that throughout this journey, right, why not make it affordable with the top care pretty much in the world? I mean, the clinics I work with are world renowned. So, why wouldn't you do that? And if you want to transfer them, they're all, you know, within the FDA protocol aspect of things. You know, they've been approved by the Canadian, um, like, FDA council. Um, you know, so there's no issue as to having a doctor here accept those eggs or embryos. And mm-hmm. I work with tons of doctors who have no, no issues using, you know, mm-hmm. eggs that were created in an international clinic. Yeah. And there's no, only because I think about this, let's say, you know, 20 years from now, like I said, if you're... Yeah. 20 in business school and you know 15 years afterwards you're like okay I'm like established I'm ready to go because one of the things that would come up in my brain is like oh well how will I know those eggs will still be there and safe because it's in a different country it's not like I mean I don't know these are just the things I think about I guess the same thing could happen in the U.S. too but then the things I think about like oh Mm -hmm. well what happens if that clinic disappears what will happen to my eggs but are the same protocols in place where you have to be contacted before anything can happen to your eggs or anything like that absolutely 100 percent. and you know i went down and i checked out their labs i went down and i looked at the clinics i looked at their protocols i asked them a million thousand questions i saw their alarm systems right like all of that um so you know from that aspect of things like you know i can only you know be behind what I've seen and understand, right? Like mm-hmm. I have worked with tons of clinics here in the United States that I have never visited. I have no idea if their protocols are in place. And you know what the crazy part is? That there is nobody checking those protocols mm-hmm. here in the United States either, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is no regulations on what fertility clinics need to have. Are there regulations of what a doctor's office needs to have? Sure, right, you need to use sanitary things and all that stuff. But there is zero regulations on how eggs or embryos or gametes are supposed to be stored here in the United States. So, you know, it's funny because people always ask this question and I'm like, but do you know how they're stored here in the U.S.? I know where my embryos are. Do I know that they're, I mean, my eggs, do I know that they're safe? I'm hoping that the clinic I stored them at, you know, have a good protocol, but I've actually never been to the back of the clinic. So I have no idea. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a really interesting thought process and um but yeah i mean um they're as safe as there are any other clinic yeah well how do people get in contact with you how do they reach out to you how they connect with you how do they consult with you how do they ask for your services if needed yeah, so um, there's a couple ways. I mean, my website is obviously the greatest source of information. It has all of my phone, it has my phone number on there, my email. Um, so the name of my law firm is Sunray Fertility, um, like the rays of sun. I always want your journey kind of to feel like that, especially when you're working with me. So um, you know that's where the name came from. But it's like S for sugar, sun, and then rayfertility.com. Um, and then, or you can just Google my name. I can promise you, there is nobody else on this earth with my name. <laughs> so if you just type in Rajan Fertility, I will be the first thing that pops up and it will take you right to my website. Um, but yeah, and then you can just schedule a call right then and there using my Calendly link or you can reach out directly through me there on the messaging system or my email. Um, but yeah, it's the quickest, easiest way to get a hold of me. 
Oh my gosh, Rajan, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so grateful for your time and all your expertise. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on here. Um, you know, this is this is something I'm so unbelievably passionate about. I always say, in a way, I'm so thankful that I was diagnosed with cancer because if it wasn't, I never would have found this space. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think I would have been a happy lawyer. So mm-hmm. I'm always unbelievably thankful that I landed into the space because I wouldn't be doing anything else. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, I feel like we have so much to talk about that we could go on and on and on. So my hope is that you'll come back so we can cover more topics that are relevant to fertility and the law if uh, hopefully if you want to come back. A hundred percent. That's not even a question, Victoria. Come on. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait for our next conversation. Me too. I look so forward to it. Thank you so much for your time today as well. I appreciate it. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes. And I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.